Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of the podcast, Healthcare's Missing Link, a podcast where we help you uncover those things that are stealing your best health. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Sherwood, today, and it's my pleasure to introduce a brand new friend and a colleague who I've followed for a while. Um, his name is Ryan Smith. Ryan is the part of the team that developed a really cool cutting edge, and I mean way cutting edge, biological age test, and he's working very diligently to bring the best science to market, and we're going to dive all into that test today. Ryan, welcome, man. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Sherwood. I'm happy to be on. So we're going to get right into this. So uh, first of all, people are like hearing the word biological age testing. So what is biological age testing anyway, and why is it important? Yeah, so you know, in, in a in a short sentence, the biological age is how old your body is, um, and you know, uh, there are a lot of different ways that people have traditionally calculated this. Um, but for the first time ever, there's been some serious developments in in having a really really good measure of biological age, um, and you know, people have been doing this for since the '50s with really crude metrics. Um, but but now we're able to do it really really precisely. We're we're actually able to predict someone's chronological age and the age of the body. And the reason that that's important is because aging is the number one risk factor for all chronic disease. And so I know one of your mission statements, uh, as we've talked about earlier, is to prevent uh, diseases that, that you can prevent, right? And, and mm -hmm. to, to reduce medications as well. And so I think that uh, this is exactly what this helps us do by knowing our biological age, we can manage our age, our, the age of our body, and therefore reduce the risk of all of those chronic diseases. And, and those things are going to be things like cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer risk, osteoarthritis, um, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. Some of these things are, are definitely delayable and preventable. Um, and, uh, and one of the ways you can do it is by looking at this biological age metric. Um, and, you know, people might be saying, hey, you know, uh, you know, I've been doing lifestyle stuff. I've been doing all this stuff that I, I know is preventative anyway. Why why do I need this metric? And, and the answer is that, uh, you know, this metric is by far the best biomarker. You know, you can take any other biomarker from your body. You can look at, you know, your blood levels. You can look at all these other things. And all of these things are necessarily not as predictive as this is. Um, this is sort of a, and that's the reason this is so exciting. You know, uh, Dr. Horvath from UCLA is one of the people who pioneered this in 2013. And uh, I think he won a Nobel Prize for it because it is so inextricably linked to the aging process itself. Um, and so, you know, uh, if any, for anyone out there who's interested in longevity or just reducing the risk of disease, um, this is a, a, a really interesting topic. That's interesting because we have a, a saying here that I, I don't want to live like this, which is kind sure. of the inverted bell curve, but I want to live like a rectangle. And, and I, we can't help you pick your parents, so we can't help you with <laughs> chronology either, but we can help you with biological age. And Ryan, how is this biological aging test, you know, how, how do you analyze this? What, what's the principles behind it? Yeah, so it's a, a pretty complex test that involves really two basic concepts. Um, one is that what we're looking at is a is a biological metric, um, that, and it, what it is is DNA methylation. Um, this is an interesting concept uh, because DNA methylation is one of those things that most people don't know about. Um, it, it, it generally is in a field called epigenetics, and, and epigenetics is sort of uh, stands for above the genome. So these are things that happen to our DNA to affect what, how our bodies act. You know, one thing I always like to say is every cell in our body has the same DNA. Um, you know, our heart cells and our, the cells in our eyes have the same DNA, but what makes 
you know, are our heart cells, heart cells? And what makes our eye cells, eye cells? And the answer is all of these epigenetic changes, um, things, genes which are turned off and on to give um, what they call this phenotype. Um, and the phenotype is, is what the end expression is, what you see clinically, what you see, you know, sort of happening. And the epigenetic changes sort of control that. Um, methylation in particular is there is happening all over the body. Um, and, uh, and generally it's associated with turning off certain genes. Um, and so, so that's sort of what we're measuring. We're measuring methylation um, all over the body. There's over 26 million spots on the DNA, um, which can be methylated. Um, and, and for what it's worth, 60% uh, of those things are changeable, which, which brings us to one of the most exciting things about this testing, which is you can actually do something about it. Unlike genetics, which, which you're sort of self-programmed with, uh, you know, you, you're sort of you can't help those things. You know, uh, uh, Dr. Uh, uh, James Watson, who, who was one of the people who discovered DNA, he was afraid to know his APOE4 variant, uh, which is a, a variant for Alzheimer's, for those of you who don't know, because he didn't, he said, why would I want to know it if there's nothing I can do about it? And, uh, you know, even though he obviously he was a great and famous scientist, he didn't know that, that we had so much control over some of these changes. And and finally, we're, we're now seeing that that not only can we control it, but we can find out what else controls it, what types of diet and nutrition, and all of those other important things can actually help us make an impact. So Ryan, these, these, this methylation process, for those of you that don't know, it, it, it's, it's a process of, of putting this methyl group onto a strand of DNA, much like a, a, a paperclip, if you yeah. will. And so Ryan, is it true that the, these methyl groups will sort of signal, depending on where they're placed, a start or a stop of genetic uh, transcription? Absolutely, yeah. You know, the, uh, the this type of methylation is really occurring at one location, and, and, and it, it's generally called the CPG regions, which are uh, repeats of a cytosine, a phosphate, and the guanine. So, you know, those four bases that make up DNA, two of those repeated over and over again yep. is generally where these things are methylated. And these are called CPG islands. And, and the interesting thing about these is that um, most genes have what they call a promoter region. And that's the region where genes uh, promote transcription. So uh, if you have a gene that encodes a protein to give you, you know, a, a black hair, for instance, um, you know, that whenever that gene is turned on, um, you, you're transcribing that gene. And, and what happens with methylation is that in the beginning of those promoter regions where things would usually go to activate it, if there's a methyl group added, which is just a, a group of carbons, um, you know, what happens is it sort of turns off transcription in that area. Um, and, and so there's a lot of these places in the genome, as I mentioned, and, and uh, you know, there are two different things. One is how we, how we actually measure those methylation. Um, the other one is how we interpret what that methylation means. Now, the interpretation is very, very key that I want people to really understand because it's all about context. You know, you Absolutely. can't, for example, and we won't go into this yeah. today in detail, but we have people come into our office all the time. And some of you out there listening, you probably have been a victim of this, is the dreaded disease called MTHFR. It's not a disease process. Everybody yeah. has that that enzyme and everybody has variations of function of that enzyme. And very people have cofactors that make that enzyme work. But the bottom line is we all methylate, don't we? And it's all about yeah. the production and placement of these methyl groups that sort of promote 
activity. Now, this is important to different disease processes, right? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, uh, so the, obviously the methylation in particular is, is a big topic because I think it's something around 60 or 70 percent of people have an MTHFR gene, which might affect their ability to methylate. Um, and, and your ability to methylate these genes is is often associated with disease characteristics. Um, and, and, you know, if you were to measure the 26 million uh, spots of methylation and then correlate that to certain disease outcomes, you can get very, very predictive uh, analyses. For instance, you can say at, you know, the 15 million and 336 methylation spot, whenever that's methylated, most people who have that methylated have uh, you know, diabetes, for instance, or, or cardiovascular disease. And so what you can do is, is out of all of these different variables, start to correlate what is and is not methylated with outcome variables. And that's where you get these, what they call these algorithms, which um, look at all those data points and then synthesize it into something that's clinically useful. Um, and, and that clinical usefulness is saying, hey, what is your risk for XYZ? And then the secondary part of that is is looking at hey what changes that methylation value is it is it diet is it exercise is it some type of supplement is it some type of uh, medication and what we can start to do is start to augment risk by knowing what exactly we need to do um, you know I always uh, I and, and I always like to, to highlight as well that this is a very very specific um, process you know it, it's incredibly accurate um, for instance you know in in clinical you know what they teach in med school right now is that one of the best ways to look at diabetes risk is to look at fasting insulin levels in hba1c which is you know glycosylated hemoglobin and um, and and already with methylation, there's actually one marker in the, in the genome. If it's methylated, uh, you're much, much more likely to develop uh, diabetes in the next seven years. And so much so it's actually more predictive than the standard of care in medicine. And so what you're going to start to see um, is just like there was a huge boom in genetics that, that led to things like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. You're going to start to see a similar boom in epigenetics where we're able to, to look at that as a, almost like a, um, a, you know, a diary of our life, um, where, you know, what is methylated tells us something about how we've lived or what might happen to us. Um, and so, so I think that the, that diary is going to, with all this new clinical research coming out, it, we're going to start to be able to read that diary a little bit better. You know, we're going to be able to say, oh, this is what this means. And this is what that means. And this is what we can do about it. And, and it, it's true, Ryan, I, I'm gathering, I think I know the answer. You can just confirm for our listeners that, that some of our um, uh, inherited sort of epigenetic markers uh, come from our heritage or mom, et cetera, upon birth. So, you know, if, you, if I heard you correctly, that might be the 40%, for example. Absolutely. But then there's 60% yep. that are sort of adaptive or perhaps able to be adapted with this epi or environmental sort of nutrigenomic change. Would that be correct? Yeah, absolutely right. And, and you know, I think that uh, the 40%, although it's unchangeable, it's still very important. You know, um, you know I always talk about uh, context, right? You know, I, we have some people who are amazing patients who do everything the right way. Um, and unfortunately, they're still a little bit older biologically than they are chronologically. Uh, and the reason being is that 40% is still a large proportion of, of what you're stuck with. And so, so one of the things we always like to emphasize is, is don't be as, try and get that number as low as possible and compete with yourself. Don't necessarily don't necessarily be too tied up about um, you know how big that number is. Just try and get it lower. Um, that's that's what we traditionally say. And and for what it's worth, that forty percent also has some really cool attributes in it. It's responsible for things like instincts and animals. 
dolphins where they, they or, you know, this genetic imprinting that allows bottlenose dolphins to, to swim um, and, you know, uh, bees to, to locate the, you know, the hive and, and other things like that. And so, so that 40% being locked is, is not necessarily a bad thing, but it is something we, that adds context to how we view this whole system. I think it's fascinating because this to me, and a lot of people would, would perhaps be like Dr. Watson and say, I don't want to know. But instead, it's it's extremely empowering, isn't it? Because it gives you uh, just other metrics, other tools that are measurable. And, and I appreciate what you said, Ryan, about the uh, competition with self, because we look at these uh, other biomarkers, such as serum markers, and, and they're in these sort of ranges. And, and somebody would say, well, Ryan Smith, you're normal. I, I don't want I don't want to hear that because it, it's 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 a bad contextual statement I just made. Exactly. I, I want to be optimal compared to what I can do. So so that's what you're talking about. Correct. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that um, that that is exactly why we're seeing this shift in, in medicine, which is, you know, in my opinion, long overdue, where people are are considering aging itself as a disease process. And, you know, and, and, and because it's so highly related to all of these diseases, if you can delay aging, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to be optimal and increase your health span and increase your lifespan? Because like you mentioned, and, you know, you don't want that that up and down curve. You want it to be you want you want a better life while having a longer life. And, um, and I think that the, the cool thing about this is you can accomplish both at the exact same time by controlling this aging process. And so I uh, completely agree. I think that, uh, that, that that's one of the most exciting parts about it is, is this whole normative range isn't necessarily hugely applicable if you can start to change things and put yourself you know, as high up as you possibly can. So there's two questions I have that I'm just kind of here, sitting here thinking about. Number one, obviously, your comparative database that mm-hmm. you're getting your algorithm development from, I, I assume, is continuing to grow. That's part one. Mm-hmm. And then part two would be the, the million-dollar question or perhaps billion-dollar question is, can biological age be reversed? So just take those yeah. questions apart, one and then two. Sure, yeah. So our data is continuing to grow. And and. And because, you know, the majority of the people who are interested in this testing right now are, are people who are already a little bit involved in their own health and, and being, uh, uh, you can't have that necessarily be the normative population either because, because, you know, a lot of the people who are interested in this test are already doing a lot of things to improve themselves. And, and so we're doing a lot of things to expand that database to people who, who haven't done a lot of interventions and, and who represent a large number of groups, whether it be racial groups or socioeconomic groups, or we want to, you know, and this is something that the, the genetics interpretations also had to deal with because the majority of genetic studies were done in, in places of high socioeconomic status, places like the Western world or uh, some places in Asia. And so, so we don't want to make that same mistake. And we want to gather a lot of different data from a lot of different individuals so that we can get algorithms, which are very predictive and make a lot of sense. And so we're, we're trying our best to do that. We're doing some studies with a couple of universities um, uh, in, and we're doing a, a, a biobank study, which we're really, really excited about um, that measures things over time. So we can even track outcomes across a lifespan. Um, and so we're, we're really excited about all of those. And then the, to answer the second question, um, you know, this is was my p- fundamental question. You know, I think that um, some, I've talked about it a little bit before, but you know, I was always interested in this for, as a cool scientific tool. I never yeah. thought it was, uh, 
super clinically helpful. You know, before before last year, actually this time last year, um, they they were using this in, in different applications, like trying to date the age of refugees to see if they were applicable for asylum, or trying to see how old a person uh, was at a crime scene investigation, or even predicting deaths so that they knew how to charge them for insurance. Yeah. Um, and all of those cool things are are, are interesting techniques and, and really cool, but but they don't necessarily have a healthcare implication. And, and I think that, uh, that my philosophy changed around this time last year when they published a trial called the TRIM trial. And this is the, the, really the first study ever published which showed that yes, absolutely, you can reduce your epigenetic aging rate and therefore extend lifespan and health span. Um, and, and what they used in that study were a couple of interesting products, uh, uh, metformin, growth hormone, and DHEA. And in just 1.5 years, they were able to reverse aging in in nine patients by uh, on average of 2.5 years um and so uh by you know that that's pretty exciting because the implications of that are, are are phenomenal um one statistic i always like to share from from another leader in the space dr morgan levine um, from yale is that if you were to reduce the aging rate by seven years across the population you actually cut disease in half 50 percent mm-hmm. of people are no longer sick and and that is a incredible to think about. If you could save 50% of the world from being sick, why wouldn't you do it? And if, if mm. you, in 1.5 years, you can get a, a good proportion of that. Imagine yeah. what you could do over a lifetime. And so that's really what spurred me to get involved in and to try and get into this as much as possible to see what interventions are changing this metric the most. Um, and, and so that we can, we can make this knowledge available for everyone and that they can live better and healthier lives. Now, on that note, I, as, as for those of you that want to dig around, you can find the, the trim trial. It's T-R-I-I-M. Uh, and, and on that one, Ryan, it just want to educate people. They were talking about, you know, generally speaking, a, a thymus rebuilding process. that's very applicable for today. Just go figure. Uh, this thymic or this immune sort of uh, improvement or maybe even more youthfulness. Uh, can you kind of go into that a little bit, if you know? Yeah, definitely. And, and actually, the narrative is very similar to this this whole normative optimization narrative we talked about earlier, where where being in the normal range isn't always the best thing for you. Um, and because as we get older, we go and uh, undergo a process called immunosenescence. And, and one of the biggest immune organs in our body, our thymus, slowly starts to shrink and become less involved in our healthcare, which is why you see people who are older being a higher risk for COVID-19 or, or a higher risk for flu and, and seasonal deaths is why they recommend you get those vaccines for, for flu every year is to protect those populations because their immune systems aren't working the same way the majority of ours are. And so the idea with the TRIM trial was how can we we rejuvenate this thymus tissue to have a better immune system. And, and, and they, they, there are a lot of ways to measure this in this, in the study, they use an MRI uh, imaging technique to look at thymic fat free fraction. Um, and, and that's sort of a measure of, of, you know, how big the thymus is and how well it's producing. And, and what they saw was that growth hormone was able to regenerate that thymus um, and therefore improve the immune system and then have an effect on epigenetic age. And, and um, it, there are a lot of reasons why that is, but, uh, but ultimately it's, it's what's represented in your bloodstream. The DNA that you're actually finding is coming from now cells, which are, are younger, healthier 
tissues. And so, um, so it's, it's a good surrogate measurement. And, you know, the other part of that trial stand for uh, insulin mitigation. Um, and, and that was where the DHEA and metformin was used for is to counter some of the side effects that often might happen with high dose growth hormone. Um, and so that was sort of the whole package. It was sort of how do we do thymic rejuvenation, improve the immune system, but manage any type of negative consequences. Um, and, uh, you know, and as uh, you know, you and I, Dr. Short have talked about as well, there might be some other ways to do this in a better way. Um, and, uh, and, and we're investigating hopefully that in the near future and hopefully we'll have some, some good things to talk about. And we will, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> stand by, you know, we are something up that's very, very cool, cutting edge. As far as I know, it's, it's very unique in the world right now. So, um, Brian and I and the rest of our teams together are going to come up with something that's really neat. And I think it'll be, um, potentially, um, highly uh, exciting for, for the world in general. Now, Ryan, when you talk about this whole, um, you know, biological testing and all this and the epigenetic sort of environmental impact on that, you've been doing this for a while. Have you seen impact, uh, clinically speaking, in, in the, the person that you know about? I know you deal with a lot of physicians, a lot of clinicians and a lot of populations. Tell us kind of what you've seen. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, it, it, we, I, I want to preface it by saying we haven't done any huge data analyses yet. Um, we definitely hope to in the future and, and come out with a lot of things to, to sort of show trends. Um, you know, anecdotally though, we have seen that certain things move this metric more than others. Um, one of those is something we've already talked about in terms of the immune system, anything which will improve the immune system and change the composition of those immune cells in the blood. So, uh, making less senescent T cells, more naive T cells, cells, more plasma B cells, those have a, a way to reduce this epigenetic aging rate. And so we've seen things, um, you know, anything that would increase the immune system, a lot of things like the, the growth hormone, growth hormone secretagogues, the thymus extraction peptides, um, things like even vitamin D and zinc have yeah. an effect on reducing um, that biological aging process. And then uh, one of the other interesting things that, that I think is very, very exciting is that there's about to be a couple trials published on just nutrition and how mm -hmm. nutrition can affect this metric. Um, and the important, the really interesting thing about the nutrition component is that these things happen very, very quickly in time. You know, the, as we mentioned, the TRIM trial had been the only trial published to date, uh, and that was over 1.5 years, which is a, a relatively long time. Um, you know, the, the diet and intervention studies, which are about to be published, were done in just eight weeks and mm -hmm. able to reverse epigenetic age around a year. Um, and so, so what we're starting to see is that maybe nutrition is a really not just a, a big mover, but also a quick mover um, mm -hmm. of some of those things. And and so you know, and the, the types of nutrition we're thing, seeing things like um, you know uh, methylation diets, which are probably a whole nother conversation. We're seeing things like fasting and fasting mimicking diets being really really applicable. And one thing that we've seen in in the epidemiological clinical literature is things like Mediterranean diets are are, are very very helpful. Things that uh, you know uh, encourage you know. Um, some type of, of fat, but also uh, low glycemic index type things. So it's interesting, you know, and I, I you know, just want people to sort of start gathering the story here. Number one, we can test sort of methylation status, if you will, through blood markers with uh, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps uh, different um, biomarkers within the methylation capacity, such as S-adenosylmethionine, S-adenosylhomocysteine, methionine, and even homocysteine, and that ratio there helps. But then you're talking about the actual expression of that action where these methyl groups are placed. And I think you said on the CPG islands. Mm -hmm. And so 
epigenetically, Ron, I guess you're saying we can change the methylation expression yes. and therefore that would potentially change the methylation status on the CPG ions. And then therefore we could potentially, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, we could potentially yeah. lower that disease risk specifically in our life. Is, is that all true? That absolutely, I think that that that, that is uh, you know theoretically true. Uh, you know, and, and it looks like through the application of these trials, we're seeing that it's not just theoretical; it is even practically true. Mm-hmm. Um, and and one thing I also like to note is that um, you know the the really interesting thing, and the reason this is probably the most exciting, is that a lot of the markers in methylation places that we look at in the DNA for these things like biological aging. Um, they're not, it looks like more, as more data comes out, it doesn't look like they're just correlated with aging outcomes. It looks like they might underlie the reason we age. Mm. Um, and, and that's an important distinction because it, it, uh, if we can affect those locations, um, then we can really affect the aging process itself. And so, so, um, not only can we do exactly what you talked about for specific diseases, but it looks like we might even do that for aging, which has a lot of different implications. Well, and certainly, you know, I, I believe that the there's a new ICD-11 code mm-hmm. called aging that's coming out. It's kind of cool from the clinician. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you talk about the the idea, you know, and I want people to get it in context again. Very important. Um, association does not equal causality, and causality does not always equal effect. But we're talking about really graduating towards this cause and effect process, right? Which, which really is what we want to do with the increase of data and analyses, right? Exactly. And, and, and that data is coming in a fast and furious way. Yeah. It, I mean, this, the, this is, uh, this is something that didn't have much data, uh, you know, at all 10 years ago. And now, you know, we're seeing probably new studies published on a, you know, a, a daily basis, um, which link to all these different disease risks. I, I often like to talk about even the application to cancer, because it's a really exciting um, yep. area even within this where, um, you know, there, there's a ways now to take s- stage zero cancers before any other imaging and any other technique. And the reason that the way that they do that is through epigenetic signatures, yep. they take a blood uh, and then they look for these epigenetic signatures. And so, so that hopefully shows you the level of specificity and precision that this type of testing has, and, and just how it can affect disease process. If you can find stage zero cancer, uh, imagine what you can do to treat cancer early versus waiting till you're stage three or four. Um, you know, the implications for that are much longer lifespans and, and, and healthier people spending more time with doing the things they love. Well, it's fascinating because, and, you know, people probably listen to this. We, we use this test here at the Functional Medical Institute. So uh, it's something that Dr. Michelle and I have done on ourselves. And, and as I think you can appreciate, Ryan, we never uh, will ever do anything patient base unless we're willing and are doing it ourselves and have done it because I just think that's certainly um, hypocritical to its very core. Uh, but but this is cutting edge stuff, Ryan, right? And this is like the future that we're just starting to sort of uh, find another galaxy, if you will, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've talked a lot about the preventative nature of this, right? Which is, which is great because it helps, you know, it fits exactly in with your mission. The other interesting part about it, though, is it's so personalized. Yeah. Um, and th- this, is a, this is a thing that, you know, people have been talking about personalized medicine for a long, long time, how to make individual decisions based on you instead of just following a protocol that is sort of the standard of medicine. And the interesting thing about this is that, 
you can do a preventive medicine approach in a way that you couldn't in a long, long before. For instance, you could give yourself medic, uh, medication and then in 12 weeks, look at how that med- particular medication affected mm-hmm. your risk of, of cardiovascular disease or, or your risk of Alzheimer's or some of those other different disease states. Mm-hmm. And, and you can really vet these therapies in real time. Traditionally, that type of investigation would have had to have been a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial that looks 40 years at, at, at what outcomes happened to these people who were taking the medication over this time. And so, so what you're starting to do is, is really shorten that length of investigation by using all this objective data. It's, you know, obviously the, the subjective is very, very important clinically, but, mm-hmm. but now we also have an objective point which allows us to have a conversation and, and do a personalized medicine approach in a short amount of time, which is invaluable to, to medicine. Well, I just love this because it, it just is really exciting. It, it's what we needed to do a long time ago. And now we're we're starting to, to yeah. see a few pioneers such as yourself. And I, I'm, I'm my congratulations and honor goes to you for having the guts to step out there. I know there's other clinicians around the world, too, and, and pioneers like yourself, Ryan. Um, what, what does this look like, you know, maybe uh, two or three years from now? What, you know, just again, just... In your big dream, what do you see happening? <laughs> oh, so so I think that this, uh, I as I mentioned, I, I really do think aging itself is a is a disease and should be classified as one. And so so I believe that this will be an instrumental part of a yearly or bi yearly e- evaluation of of people, um, and, and also been used to to look at what diseases you're most at risk at. And we already know, uh, you know, through the familiar histories, through social histories, uh, that, that some people are predisposed to these conditions. So let's target them early. Let's stay ahead of it. You know, like I said, I have an APOE4 variant. I want to know how to reduce my risk of Alzheimer's. And and yep. if I can determine an epigenetic link, which helps in that, I absolutely will. And and try and use that to, to benefit my, my own health process. Um, and so there's so many different ways that this can go. I think that what you'll start to see are things like personalized diet and nutrition programs, which are which are based on your epigenetic profiles to reduce risk. You'll start mm-hmm. to see medication developments. There actually already now um, some FDA-approved drugs which work on the epigenome, um, yep. mostly in cancer, to, to sort of change the expression of these cancers. Um, so you're going to start to see targeted medications, which probably have less side effects and are more specific. Um, and so you're going to start to see improvements in therapies. You're going to start to see improvements in how we treat our diet and nutrition. You're going to see even, uh, you know, recommendations on the best, uh, di- fitness activities to do based on your own, you know, individual profiles. And so, uh, this is going to be, uh, growing at, a, at an enormous rate and, and having someone to make use of that data is, is going to be really, really helpful, which is why the physicians are so important in this, especially as it's so new. Um, you know, you, you really need someone to sort of counsel and guide. Uh, based on what the data says and the strength of that data, you know, as mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about, um, you know, biostatistics and, and yeah. informatics, uh, it oftentimes can be a little confusing. And so you really need someone to say, hey, you know, at the end of the day, this is what I recommend because of this data. And, and I think that we were lucky enough to have uh, partnerships with a lot of great physicians like yourself who are, who are helping us uh, communicate that to patients. Well, certainly, uh, you know, from our perspective, as we were talking prior to our call today and, and jumping on here is, you know, our our mission is to put this in as a as sort of a biannually assessment and see it grow and 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 analyze, you know, um, objectively and subjectively and then add to the database, of course. And and I think you said something very key that, that I want to affirm is I agree with you. It is extremely important to have someone in your corner that is trained and understand this to help you interpret it because 
information is only as good as the interpretation. And if you get information and don't put it into action appropriately, it will become misinformation. And we've seen it. We've seen probably a ton of that with with methylation, I guess. Right. Exactly. And there are a lot of ways to go wrong, which is why you need uh, you need it centered well. So, Ryan, uh, you know, what what are you working on, man? You're, you know, you you for those of you that don't know, Ryan is an expert in uh, in peptides, um, you know, and this new uh, true age testing. What, what's what's new for Ryan Smith? I mean, what's on the horizon? You know, I, I, I'm lucky enough to be, you know, uh, uh, you know, living, uh, I should say, doing work, doing work, which is always incredibly exciting to me because, uh, you know, this is, this is uh, I think, the future of medicine and I, and I believe in it. And so right now, one of our, my biggest focuses is looking at these interventions we, with obviously, you know, trials like ours and, and doing some other interesting things in the space, looking at things like senolytic medications or, or plasma apheresis or stem cells or exosomes and looking at how all of these things can affect the aging process but in an objective manner. I think that we all, you know, in this field, we've all seen anecdotal results and, and that's great, but, but let's put, you know, let, let's prove it. Let's, let's go out there and, and put some data behind it that, that makes these things more widely accepted and, and makes us know a little bit more about how exactly they're going to work. And, and so that's really right now what I'm trying to pour most of, of my time into is, is, is giving everyone not only the tools to see what their, what their age is, but also know exactly what to do once you see that. You know, Ryan, I would tell you personally, reason I wanted to have you on too, because you're an encourager as well, and I appreciate that. So, well, the people are out there right now, and, and and you got your your best. Okay, so in 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 thirty seconds, can people get better with their health? Encourage them, Ryan. Yeah, absolutely. It, it is entirely in your hands. Uh, you know, it, that doesn't mean you're not behind the eight ball, right? You know, some people are genetically and have dispositions, which, which might be hard, but it doesn't mean that you can't overcome them. And, and now that's, I think we have data that's proven and, and should be at least a, a mental uplift to say, hey, take control and, and, and do the things you need to live the lifestyle you want. And I think that with health underlying everything we do, uh, you know, it is a fundamental part of a, a healthy, of, of a nice and enjoyable life. And I think that, uh, that, that hopefully that can be the motiva- motivation for people to know, hey, it is something I can do. I can be better. Let's try and do it. Amen. Well said. Second that motion. <laughs> Ryan, thank you, man, for uh, for coming on today. I, I thoroughly appreciate it. Um, on behalf of myself, Dr. Michelle, and the rest of our team here at FMI, we are sincerely looking forward to working with you more and more and more in the future. And uh, man, let's, let's change health care and let's change the trajectory of our health, right? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. Now, I, I look forward to being back on after we uh, talk about the results of our study. You betcha we will. So, folks, thank you for joining us today on another edition of Healthcare's Missing Link. And make sure that you always subscribe to find out who and what is coming next. Remember, don't let those things that are hidden steal your best health. We'll look forward to seeing you on the next edition of Healthcare's Missing Link. Bye for now. <laughs>